right. Welcome to Finance Masterminds Podcast. This is season two, episode one, and joining me is Mozam Shah and James Solomons. Tonight's topic is the CFO that every CEO looks for. Uh, the genesis of this, as, uh, uh, as per a Corn Ferry Executive Research Survey, 64% of finance leaders expressed interest in becoming CEOs. Being a dependable CFO for a CEO eases this transition. However, only 8% of CFOs at some of the largest U.S. companies were promoted to CEOs in H1 2022 for Fortune.com. In Season 2 of the Finance Masterminds podcast, we'll talk about what can make a CFO CEO ready, overcome right brain challenges, and become the obvious choice to lead a business. Um, as we get started, let's get an introduction from our speakers. Uh, James, would you like to kick us off? Sure. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, everyone, for having me on today. Um, James Solomons, uh, I'm the CFO, COO as well of XREF Limited, an ASX-listed uh, global technology company. Um, we're in the HR space and have been since 2010. Uh, I've been the CFO there since 2016, so I'm coming up to, to seven years. Uh, we've got offices around the globe uh, in each of the major operating areas, US, North America, uh, both Canada and US, uh, Europe, New Zealand, and our HQ is down here in Sydney. Um, been an accountant as at the 29th of January, just gone for 21 years. I know that because it's my brother's birthday as well. <laughs> so I've been counting the beans for, for quite a long time. Um, I've got two kids, a, a beautiful wife. Uh, I love fast cars. I love football, the soccer version. And uh, I love numbers, obviously, because that's what I do. Awesome. That's great. Thank you. And uh, Mozam, you're next. Thanks, Ron. Uh, hello, everyone. Mazam Shah, uh, Chief Financial Officer of Aspen Medical. So Aspen Medical is a Canberra headquartered global healthcare service provider. I've been with, uh, working with the, uh, with the company for three and a half years now. Prior to Aspen Medical, I was uh, uh, just traveling around the world. And, uh, you know, I've worked in four different continents uh, in the world so far, enriching myself both uh, personally as well as professionally. So learned a lot, uh, you know, made good connections, great friendships. And, uh, you know, I think uh, apart from uh, loving numbers or, uh, you know, uh, doing finances, I, I enjoy traveling. I, I enjoy socializing. Uh, so, so I guess, uh, I, I guess uh, those, those are the things that I enjoy. And I'm, I'm very pleased to be on the call. Oh, fantastic. Thank you both for the intros. So I mentioned at the beginning, we we're going to start talking about being the right-hand person of the CEO. Uh, Mozem, let's start with you. So how has the CFO's role evolved in the last five years? And have you seen priorities shift or changing? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Ron. I think uh, in the modern day and age, CFOs are not only expected to be only the financial advisors of the CEO and the rest of the C-suite of any organization, but they are expected to transition from being the trusted financial advisor to the trusted business advisor. And I think that the delta between the two is, 
is really the strategic value. And to be able to create that strategic value, a very sound understanding of two, two things are, are important in my view. The first one is uh, the key business drivers. So what creates value in the business, whether it's, uh, it, it's part of the BD that drives the revenue or the part of the operation that drives the cost and the delivery side, but what, what really drives the value? Uh, and obviously it, it all, it's all about creating finance business partnerships in order to understand those value drivers and, um, and, and, and monitor and facilitate them. And the second attribute is, is to use, is the use of cognitive technologies and digital drivers uh, by, by the CFO. Now, we all know that many finance jobs uh, could soon require these expertise, i.e. understanding of uh, the digital and the cognitive technologies, and it would require experience working with those technologies as well. And what is now a nice to have skill set uh, could could really begin to become a minimum requirement in in the near future. And uh, and I think as 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 the nature of finance work um, is evolving, different kinds of finance professionals uh, may be needed, uh, including data scientists and and business analysts, who are not only uh, great at analyzing things. But also someone who who is great at uh, who's who's great who's a great s storyteller, uh, mm. which means really turning the business insights into Im impactful communication. So, so I guess it's a it's a the role of the CFO is really pivoting away from just being the trusted financial advisor to becoming more of a trusted business advisor. Yeah, very interesting. I don't think we would have described the CFO's role as storyteller five years ago, for sure. That's a it's an interesting development. Uh, James, for you, um, how have you seen CFOs successfully prepare themselves to be CEO ready? Is this a transition you often see? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, there is a, I guess, probably a whole group of. CFOs who look at the CEO position and go, I never want to do that. <laughs> um, even even though sometimes, you know, the CFO will be a, a deputy CEO when the, the CEO's often about enjoying some well-earned rest. Um, but then there is another type of CFO, I think, that does um, uh, aspire to maybe be the CEO one day. Uh, I would fall into that category. I, I do have CEO aspirations at some point in my career. And and I and I do see it often. Um, you know, you know, particularly in the ASX space, you do sometimes see that jump. Um, given given, I guess, the financial requirements on listed entities or venture backed entities as well. Um, who knows the numbers better than the CFO? And if they've got the ability to have other leadership skills, then they would make a CEO that not only can properly read a balance sheet and a PL, um, but at the same time, you know, be able to um, be across the entire business. As Malzam was saying, our role has changed so much that we are across most departments now. And what does the CEO do? He sits at the top, he drives engagement, and he sits across all the different um, all the different areas. So what I've seen the successful transitions um, boil down to is if you're a CFO that wants to go down that path, you're actually going to be actively uh, wanting to do more. So 
um, in for me, I have finance, legal, commercial, HR, and sales and revenue report into me. So mm. I've effectively, the only teams that don't report into me directly are marketing, even though I have a very strong handle on what's happening there because they spend the most. Love you, marketing guys, <laughs> girls. Um, and development, we're a tech company. We obviously have a CTO. But of course, I'm very involved in the financial side of that. So, but it's not just about then the numbers side uh, around those different areas. It really is leading, you know, putting yourself into, out of your comfort zone in, in helping to grow those areas of the business. And so that's that's where I've seen the CFOs be able to make that transition. Um, you know, you don't have to have the COO title that I've sort of picked up in the last couple of years, um, but you certainly need to be outside of the finance bubble, if you like, um, and really getting involved in all the different parts of the business and effectively elevating yourself even within the finance office where you have a 2IC so that you have time to have lots of meetings and speak to people and see what's going on. Um, so I think I think that's the thing. There's no there's no secret sauce if you like, and everyone will approach it a bit different. But definitely, you know, you've, you've the ones that have been successful have, have taken that leadership approach across more than their own division, and been able to then, um, you know, if they get that CEO role, obviously it's not too dissimilar to what they're doing already. Yeah, it's an amazing span of control you have as CFO. And again, five years ago, I don't know that we would have seen that. Uh, as, as the business partners evolve. Very cool. Um, so Muslim, you had made a comment about storytelling. So I want to go back to that for a minute. And one of the terms I heard recently was describing CFOs as data narrators, which was, I thought was a very interesting term. Um, and so we talked a little bit about it, but I'd like to dive more into that. So CFOs, they really do need to be storytellers with a complete control and visibility into the org's financial position. Um, what do you think about in your role? What what are the critical pieces of data, the critical metrics, the critical reports that you look at to make decisions in your org? Thanks, Ron. I think uh, I think first and foremost thing I, I, I wanted to highlight is that Aspen Medical, by virtue of the nature of this business, is is quite complex and very well diversified. So we actually, within the group, you've got manufacturing company, a trading company that can, deals in uh, medical equipment, consumables, pharmaceuticals, and stuff like that. So all the ten tangible product, all the way to other entities within the group that are service-oriented businesses, i.e. contracted healthcare services, where we place clinicians and uh, and doctors, uh, you know, on, on different client sites, be it oil and gas sector or mining sector or or, or, or government-related departments uh, across Australia and other parts of the world as well, uh, to aviation sector. So it's it is just a, such a diversified, uh, uh, you know, business. Uh, and obviously, the the value drivers that I was talking about in my previous point that are important uh, from CFO's role perspective. I think it, it, they are different and it really depends, you know, what sort of business uh, you're looking at in identifying those key value drivers. So as a CFO of Aspen Medical, I, I basically review both the financial as well as the operational uh, indicators, performance indicators with an emphasis on the key value drivers that 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 really bring in and create value. Now, the key value drivers, as I said, differ amongst uh, the group companies within Aspen Medical, depending on the nature 
of, uh, of, of that particular entity. So last year, we implemented a first year ERP system across the group companies. Uh, it was rolled out here in Australia as well as internationally, uh, right from US all the way to the UAE and from Papua New Guinea and Fiji all the way down to Australia. Wow. Uh, so prior prior to rolling, it was it was a massive uh, rollout. <laughs> I've actually done three system uh, rollouts in different businesses prior to coming to Aspen Medical, but this was by far the most uh, complex and most interesting that I've uh, you know I've experienced in in my career. So prior to to this particular system rollout, the the group Aspen Medical Group was running on multiple systems uh, that would not talk to each other. So you can imagine that, you know, consolidating all these entities that have cross-border transactions and, and, and different business models, uh, consolidation was just a nightmare. But with, with this system rollout, what we have done is we have unified the entire database of, of the business on, on a single platform. Now, the next step, uh, that we are currently working on is, is really to automate automate the financial and operational reports and then uh, to use the business intelligence enabled dashboards uh, to facilitate uh, the executive decision making process. So in this process, as, as we are doing, you know, uh, doing all of this digital transformation, we are identifying the key performance indicators for each business unit that we have within the group, uh, both financial as well as operational, to go into those dashboards, to go into those different reports that, are, that have visibility and audience right from the board of directors all the way down to the operational managers uh, who are working on ground delivering those wonderful services. So my role really, you know, looks after uh, the financial as well as the operational performance indicators for these entities. Super interesting. Uh, great story on the automation. Thank you for sharing. Uh, James, I've got a question for you. I want to flip it to you. A, a little preamble and a story for me, but I have a very good friend who's a VP of finance and he's working on upskilling himself right now. And the upskilling he wants to do is so that he's comfortable public speaking, managing investor and analyst relations. And I thought it was really interesting that that would be something that he'd be worried about. Um, is that something you feel can help peers, your peers to ease the transition to a CEO's role for a finance leader? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, in 2018 on my it's actually my very first trip to New York City. Um, on between our uh, London and Canadian office, I took the opportunity to go into to NYU Stern and do just a short executive course for over a couple of days, as well as eat some pizza and hot dogs. Um, <laughs> and and you know, obviously, being a CFO, I've done countless hours of training in the number space, um, lots of designations. It cost a lot of money. I'd never actually gone and done a leadership course. So I went in, it was a leadership for high potentials was the name at NYU Stern and um, fantastic course, two days. And really it brought together a lot of the things that I'd done. Um, and I've always been a good public speaker, so so I haven't had to skill myself up there. But but essentially 
brought a lot of my leadership skills together and it gave me some key attributes about how to be a leader um, generally. You know, it wasn't just based on being a leader in finance. And it really came down to, you know, knowing when to lead with data versus leading with emotion to get people engaged and things like that. And that really helped me ease my sort of or improve my skill set into that space of being a, a more of a leader as opposed to just a, a finance leader. And so certainly in the public speaking, managing investor and analyst relations, um, it's storytelling. I mean, what does a CEO do? Our, our founder, who's our CEO, he is an amazing storyteller. And he'll take you on a journey that you've never been before. And of course, that comes from obviously being a, a good uh, a founder. Obviously, founders are more passionate about their business than anybody. Um, I'm sure your founder, Moazam, is just as more passionate than anybody in, in, in Aspen. But essentially, you know, on the side of that, he is really good at public speaking. He used to do wedding ceremonies because we're a startup. That was how he helped, helped fund the business in the bootstrap days. And so he's been really, really good at that. And he takes people on journey. He gets people to buy in because if you remember, what's a CEO's ultimate job? Getting buy-in from everybody in the business to the vision and taking them along that journey. Uh, the individual leaders are there to do a little bit of that, but also at the same time, the functional part. So, you know, absolutely any any finance leaders that want to make that transition to higher leadership, whether it's CEO or COO or even, even to become a CFO, um, you have to have those skills. So he's on the right track, um, or she. Uh, he, he's on the right track. And so, therefore, um, you know, because that's whole, that becomes your day uh, when, you're, when you're dealing with, with all those different people. But even internally, uh, even in internal town halls and stuff, um, you've got to have that ability to to do it, but definitely um, that upskilling in all those spaces. Like I took that opportunity to do, I still think it's one of the best courses I've I've done in twenty odd years of 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 career, and I've add on my school days, you know, thirty odd years of of learning, and I love continuous leadership, uh, continuous learning. So it was really good because it it really helped me identify how I could become a, a better leader. Awesome. Um, one question, I grew up in Connecticut, right outside the city. I worked in the city for a long time. I'm convinced there's something in the water that makes the pizza awesome in New York. Did you feel that same way when you tasted oh, it? You know, yeah, Australia, very, you know, very connected to America and everything we do. The pizza down here is, I'm, I'm half Italian, so I love pizza. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, but when I went over there and found this little corner shop, I was in the, um, uh, the east side and, um, you know, a slice of pizza that's like huge, just yeah. straight pepperoni. And I was like, I'm in heaven. This is been, it's just very, <laughs> very different to what we have in, in Australia, which again is very different to what's in Italy. Um, yeah. But certainly, um, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. It's all I ate for three days. I saved money because a slice of pizza was like $4 or $5. And in reality, you know, I could have spent 30, 40, $50 at dinner. I saved money. I just ate pizza. <laughs> and hot dogs for lunch. It was great. That's awesome. All right, so we're going to stay on the money topic for a minute. I'm going to stay with you, James. Uh, we'll ask one more question here. But I want to talk about forecasting, so back to the finance side. Um, so what's your approach at your org tours accurately forecasting cash? Um, and what should finance leaders think about or do differently in 2023 around accurate cash forecasting? Very, very, very good question. Um, fortunately, we're a much simpler business than Aspen. Uh, being a tech company, our biggest input's wages. Um, bit of rent, 
bit of travel and and the like. So, you know, and obviously every business is different, but I think the fundamentals are, are certainly there. And if I wrote an article um, in the first year of COVID about, you know, how do you accurately forecast cash? And it talked about CFOs of um, of aeroplane, aeroplane, you know, flights, Qantas, Qantas, Air America. I can't think of the word. What are they called? Aviation. Uh, who would have forecasted, and maybe they did, to have every revenue-generating asset grounded, right, and basically unable to fly, particularly in Australia where there was just no flights. And, you know, it all came down to the fundamentals. You know, it's all about the runway and how much cash you've got and what what sort of dip. And up until we were a uh, profitable business a couple of years ago, outside of coming out of COVID, we became profitable. Obviously, our, our six-monthly audits are all about going concern, you know, and stress testing. And really, I think the approach that we do now is we don't just do our um, our stress testing and our, our variance analysis based on, you know, uh, the fact that we could have another COVID, it's everything. It's it's the ups and the downs in revenue and what do you need to do? And there's always a there's always a plan and there's always the triggers and the levers. You know, if revenue's down this much, you know, how long before we need to reel in, reel in cash somewhere else? Um, but obviously the only way we've been able to do that is is automating. Um, you know, it's it's certainly we just put in a new system when COVID hit and um without that system, the amount of spreadsheets that we would have had to have used the amount of i mean the amount of hours i spent just with that system was huge i can only imagine if it was manual so i think in terms of doing it differently certainly we we have started to move to more of that continuous based i mean as a as a listed company for diligence there needs to be a, a true budget signed off by the board everyone agrees on that at a point in time but we're constantly we're forecasting we're updating every day as we go along um and that really keeps us uh, abreast of what's happening so you know if finance leaders haven't been getting to this sort of continuous forecasting and really focusing on cash flows um we still obviously profit's really important again as a, as a listed company because uh, that's what you know, sits there on the the p l but cash was still king for us even though we're now profitable on cash flow we're still constantly looking at that because um um you know that's going to allow us to keep reinvesting um but yeah, I think that's that's sort of where we are, and, and certainly if if people are thinking about doing it differently, if they're still very much a traditional, and obviously again it depends on the size of the business, but they're very much a traditional, you know, once a year or maybe once every six months, maybe a little bit more um, continuous will help. I've I've always been, and I'm pretty proud of this when we were doing quarterly updates to the share market. I was always in within one to two percent of of our forecasted cash results. Um, so, you know, that was, that was a testament in the, in the old days of when we had it manual, just yeah. constantly keeping the data going in. But that's, that's to the earlier point about using the data and the metrics. If you can get it automated, that, that actually becomes really, really straightforward. And I think that should be a focus on, on all finance teams in, in this particular year as we start to come out of COVID and get to some sort of normal. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. One to two percent forecast on cash is an amazing metric. Kudos. Well, we were a small business. Yeah, we weren't that big at that time. We're still not that big. We're still a, a micro cap. However, I'll hang my hat on it. It's still one percent. So that's good. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Moza, I'm going to go to you. If you have a pizza story, feel free to share it. If not, it's okay. But I want to talk about a little bit more around the digital transformation and the initiatives. 
Um, you shared a little bit out of it, but I want to just pull on the thread because it sounds like you have some good stories. Um, one success story for the for the folks and one lesson learned from the digital transformation initiatives you've been let, led or been part of. And feel free to layer on if it's ERP as you've started, but we'd love to hear a little bit more on those. Thanks, John. I think uh, before sharing my digital transformation um, success story and lessons learned, I, I must say that, uh, you know, uh, James' uh, pizza story in, in New York really bring back a lot of good memories because I actually lived in that city for four years and nice. I know exactly what, <laughs> uh, you know, I can My kids are bugging me. My kids are bugging me to get over there. Yeah, they want to go over and eat pizza. Uh, and I'm like, cool, let's do it. Let's do it. Great. I've got an excuse to go to NYC again. <laughs> awesome. So, look, I, I've actually been um, in, in, in leadership roles uh, uh, during four major digital transformation initiatives during my CFO career uh, in the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so. So some of some of the key success factors uh, for any digital transformation initiative is to really clearly identify the end goal before uh, embarking on uh, a transformation journey. So in my view, digital transformation is, is, is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. And I think that's, that's one thing that I've seen a lot of uh, businesses, they misconstrue, they think that digital transformation, uh, you know, is, is a fantastic, is a very fancy buzz, buzzword. And, and probably that's what the goal is. Uh, but it's uh, it's means to an end, uh, and the end end goal should really be something that uh, that brings in value, either through you know a superior level of customer experience. You develop a new product, you develop a new service, leveraging digital technology to create a, a unique customer experience, or you know it could be cost op optimization. And creating a cost competitive adv advantage for uh, for the business uh, by creating pro process uh, efficiencies and and internal controls. So the first and the foremost thing uh, for me is to be clear about the outcome of any digital transformation process. And and the next thing is to thoroughly plan the transformation process, which really includes multiple things, including uh, selection of the pro of the product. You know what sort of system and what sort of uh, software you're you're selecting or you think is is most suitable for uh, for, for the needs of the business uh, selection of the implementation partner and then uh, mm -hmm. the process documentation the testing of the new newly built system the change management uh, building in-house uh, capability to support the system after the rollout has occurred and then sufficient uh, training of uh, of the end user so i think these these are some of the key success criteria um, uh, as as part of any digital transformation process and in my experience any new system rollout is a very consuming and exhausting process i remember 10 years ago when i when i experienced my first uh, sap implementation project in a different business i promised myself that i'll never ever do it again but uh, you know, here I, I am, ten years later, and I've uh, I've recently completed my fourth uh, ERP implementation. So it 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 is an exhausting uh, uh, process, and it requires individuals who are uh, not only subject matter experts in their own functional areas, whether it's finance or 
or, 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 or other functional areas, but also they should have great communication skills. Uh, you know, uh, their, their willingness to really roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty during the process obviously is very important because someone who is a subject matter expert and has very sound understanding of their own functional area and how the process work, work not only works, but how to improve, improve that process. But someone with weaker communication skill and not uh, a great storyteller, as, as we have all discussed, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the whole process cannot be very, very effective. The biggest mistake a business can make uh, when embarking on any digital transformation journey is to ignore two things, you know, in my view. The first one is the quality of data that goes into the newly, newly built system. You can buy the best and the most expensive system in the world and have the best of the best teams deployed to, to, to launch it, but it will be a failed transformation most likely if the, if the data that goes into the new system is unstructured or it's not cleansed. So yeah. one of the areas that I've seen is often a blind spot for many businesses who embark on, on, on similar journeys. Uh, you know, they focus a lot on other areas, which is fair enough. But when it comes to cleansing and the integrity of data, they, you know, it's it's not there. And, and therefore, the projects, uh, you know, they don't become successful. And likewise, change management is another key risk factors that uh, I have seen in, in similar transformation projects, which is one of one of the key things. So if it is not planned and executed effectively, uh, you know, the chances are that, that any digital transformation project can uh, can result into a failure. Um, so, so these are these are some 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 of the things that I think in any digital transformation project uh, needs to be considered. Yeah, love it. So first, always preach garbage in, garbage out. I can't tell you how many times you've had that discussion. Um, and also. There's so many people who buy software and put in new processes that don't think about the solution. They just think about what's this button going to do in this giggly frat and this widget versus, you know, having the, the end goal in mind. So that was great advice. Uh, James, for you, talk to us about the digital transformation that you drive outside of finance and accounting. Um, or if you do, <laughs> talk to us about what you do. And if so, what does that process look like? Yeah, um, I, I do. So answer the first question. Um, and that's probably come from in my pre-CFO days, I was in public practice uh, and I was very early on in the Zero journey, uh, the Zero accounting software. I even got to work for Zero uh, for four years as their head of accounting, which wasn't in the finance office. It was in sales and marketing and um, working with um accounting practitioners about streamlining their practices. And so I actually spent a lot of time um, doing digital transformations in not only just the zero side, um, but also, and you, you might call this obviously um, still finance, but you know, point of sale system, it's infantry systems, you know, the smaller type businesses. But then it would started to branch out a bit more into operational transformations, uh, HR systems. Um, and so I, I thoroughly enjoy that uh, I've always been a person that looks at 
systems improvement and technology becomes that sort of backbone to, to help that process. So at XRF, I've, I've been responsible for three HRIS changes. Um, yeah, we just recently implemented HiBob, the, uh, the, the fantastic product born in Israel a little while ago. Um, so we implemented that. Um, I've been involved in bringing in um, Asana uh, across the parts of the business for all of our processes um, that's not related to a particular area. Obviously, our developers use the Atlassian suite, Jira, and, and all those sorts of things, but anything that's outside of a very uh, specific piece of workflow software, uh, it's come into Asana. So I've been involved in that and a few other little ones that are outside of finance and accounting. And, and obviously, when I'm not the leader of that part of the business, you know, there is a little bit more of a um, consultative process uh, that, that's required, speaking with uh, obviously that area, finding out their pain points, um, mapping out their current processes, finding where we can automate and, and transform. And then, you know, much to Moa's Em was saying, then it's really a lot of it comes down to that change management piece and, and very much, um, you know, uh, the one of the other big risks I always see is that you can, can put all this in and if you've got a few doubters in the business that just aren't willing to change that can help you know they can be those negative people that can sometimes bring down the process or delay it um mm -hmm. but effectively it's spending a lot of time with them finding out what their what their pain points are understanding what the outcomes need to be um and so in reality all that moazem said is what should be done it has to be the same uh in the other areas because whilst it might not have a a number as part of the resulting improvements in, in you know, some better numbers or fast reporting, it's going to help them do their job faster. There's obviously saving a pain point. There's a reason they need to transform. And, you know, we have, we've always had a rule. Uh, I've always had this rule as well. If you touch something three times manually, you've got to automate it. Um, so we, we sort of follow that process. We're about to start going through that process again. It's a, it's a continuous review. We've just put in a new billing system, launched a brand new platform, um, so it's very much right. We've done that. Let's let's now stop and really redefine the back end. You know, startup Rob, we're moving very fast. Let's take a step back. Let's make sure we can you know, get the back end right so that we can scale um, and, and move forward. So not very different to what I would normally uh, do if I'm doing finance and accounting, but of course, um, dealing with pay, maybe a different area that uh, maybe thinks a little bit differently to the typical accountant. Yeah. That's great. I love that answer. If you touch it three times, you should automate it. That's a yeah. great rule. Um, so you also mentioned people, and I want to talk a little bit about this. And I was very lucky and have been very lucky in my career to work with some um, really good business partner CFOs. And one thing I loved about them is they were part of the team and they were team builders. And they were very much about culture and being cultural champs. And so I want to talk about that for a minute. Um, and Mozam, start with you. How do you think about leveraging the talents and skills of your people to accomplish the objectives in your in your department or group? So Ron, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think uh, some of the key attributes of success for any finance organization is uh, understanding of the key value drivers of the business and, uh, and also uh, understanding uh, the use of different uh, digital and cognitive technologies in uh, in bringing about the value. 
So, so I think most of the finance leaders acknowledge that their teams lack uh, the competencies to take advantage of uh, the digital te technologies, but very few of us are clear on how to close the, the, this competency gap. Because if, if finance leaders fail to shrink the digital talent gap, uh, I think the culture of uh, digital haves and have-nots in, in any finance organization will, uh, will really deepen and, and their ability to take advantage of uh, these digital investments will, uh, will, will obviously uh, worsen. So, so what I've learned is that there are a handful of uh, digital competencies that are truly, uh, you know, new in their kind and and have, uh, but they at the same time they have enough staying power um, and, and and very much applicable within the context of, uh, you know, the the back office or the middle office or the front office finance work. So I think some some of these competencies, digital competencies, that are must have in a, in any finance organization, is uh, is uh, technological literacy, which which really means understanding of what sort of um, technology tools uh, are out there that can be leveraged in um, in um, uh, in creating value, whether it's uh, robotic process automation or or cloud computing, artificial intelligence. Uh, NLP and so on. So understanding, uh, having literacy, uh, about being literate about these te technological tools by hardcore accountants, I think that is that is important. Uh, and also their ability to translate those uh, the use of those technologies to others in the business outside of the finance area, so that they can understand. You know, and and this is all part of the change management process mm. to be able to articulate the use and the value of these digital tools for the business and also you know uh creating a digital ambition amongst people uh which which really is the motivation to embrace new new technology and new ways of thinking so i think an important thing to understand is that the absence of this competency muscle will can really hurt finance uh, position in uh, in supporting profitable growth for any business and without finance's ability to provide uh, these augmented insights to the business um, you know in much shorter time frame uh, what will happen is that uh, the decision makers will bypass the finance and, and and get the information they believe they need for their own from their own systems whether it, it's an excel worksheet or standalone yeah. system or you know elsewhere um, or they may very well revert to a gut-based decision making, you know, which which I have actually witnessed in many businesses. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. But I, so I grew up in the world of finance. It's my degrees, and before I, I got into sales, and we we were just in spreadsheet hell. That was like the world we lived in. And some people still are, but it's interesting to hear about the digital haves and the digital have-nots now. Mm. It's sort of just the trend, the transition from then to now. Um, James, I'm going to come to you just as the leader of the finance team. What role do you play? I talked about culture. What role do you play in fostering company culture? I think, um, you know, the CFO is the chief fund officer. Um, so it's definitely, um, you know, there is a perception that the CFO can be the, the toe cutter. 
cuts the budgets, <laughs> was, you know, was responsible for the, the layoffs in COVID and things like that. And so, you know, there's always a stigma around the person that controls numbers in good and bad times. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, I think, um, you know, it was a bit like we, we, we answered before about your, your friend, you know, um, you know, and it's the social skills. Even like what Mama Zam said, you know, it's that old saying. Whenever I used to say I was an accountant, to people, like, oh, you've got a personality. You don't, you're not, you're not a normal accountant. But I think that's the change, right? It's um, we aren't the cardigan wearing. Uh, although I do like to put on a nice cardigan or or jumper when it gets cold. But I think we've definitely changed as an industry, and and there are a lot of people. Um, and you know, some of the biggest employers in the world are the big four accounting firms. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of people in finance and, and accounting. And I think, you know, that, that mould is breaking, um, but it's not then just about me. Um, I could very much be, you know, uh, the, the, in the C-suite and everyone enjoys talking to me, but I really push my team to, to get out and about. I'm, you know, whatever, whether it's been in practice and with clients or whether it's been in, in the corporate and people in the teams, I've never actually held my team back from getting amongst the rest of the business, building relationships, um, you know, having a good time. I mean, I do hire based on that, you know, very much culture fit. You know, if someone's not a culture fit, they they, they can't come into the team. Um, and so, and that's, not, that's, that's to not upset the finance team, but also they need to fit into the rest of uh, the business. And, and, you know, we're in tech sales. So, you know, there's a very... Interesting culture in tech sales, as you guys would know. Um, and certainly, you know, that person's got to be able to fit into that. What I've always focused on is telling my team that we're effectively, we're the enablers. We're the enablers to the sales guys, we're the enablers to the marketing teams and the dev teams. And, and the role that they play is very important to enable them to do their jobs. And to do that, they need to know what's going on. They need to be, they need to be part of the team. So they're always involved. And, and it means that it's not just when I say something, it's respected. It's when my 2IC says something or my AR person says something. And so that just really brings them very much into part of the business. So they, they have a joke and they have a bit of fun. They build relationship. But then when, no offence, Ron, sales guy tries to break the rules, they push back. <laughs> They push back and, and the salesperson's like, no, cool, I respect that, very good. Uh, I'll try a different method, right? So it's um, that's that's what I've done and, and I've been very, um, very direct and intentional on making sure my team in finance and across the wider operations team that I look after are very visible in the business. Uh, they're not hidden away in, in the corner. And I think, I think that's important for me. I mean, might not be the CEO, but the C-suite, that's effectively our, our job, much like partners in accounting firms. You know, their job is to, to be driving that engagement across the business and, and bringing people up to give them those, those opportunities. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I mentioned I was very lucky to work with some really good CFOs, and one of them told me two things. He said, one, and I love that we broke this stigma, it used to be CFO, and thankfully that <laughs> has become... <laughs> The stigma that has gone away. Uh, the other yeah. thing he said is, you could think of my job as the chief allocator of resources, financial people, time. Yeah. I thought that was a really interesting comment because it is yeah. true. Like the, the CFO has the eye on what's happening in the organization and, and the, moving everything around to make sure it all fits perfectly. 
So, yeah, uh, try. and by the way, no offense taken, I might be in sales now, but my background is finance. So I still love doing my budget and my plan and making sure I have no variances. And I, I don't promise I don't, but I'm good at identifying. <laughs> um, last question, Mozan, we're going to go to you. Um, we're going to talk about some cost control in the, <laughs> the economy that we live in today, um, appropriately dubbed as VUCA, so VUCA. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And uh, so we're going to talk about that. And it's really about the market downturn we see today. It's likely not the first market downturn you've seen. Um, is there anything you're doing differently this time compared to last time? Thanks, Ron. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, we are living in an interesting time, right? So what, what we have seen is that the economic growth has, has, has slowed down. In, in the wake of um, rising interest rates, a 41-year-old, uh, 40 sorry, 41-year high rate, rates of inflation, a very tight uh, skill labor market, disruption disruption in the global supply chain, which was um, previously due to COVID-19 pandemic and 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 obviously now due to uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine, all while COVID-19 uh, variants. Uh, continue to lurk in the background. So I can I can comfortably say that, uh, you know, navigating through the, this crisis, economic, potential economic crisis, uh, you know, I'm not going to enlighten you anything to do with scenario planning and robust cash flow forecasting and some of the other techniques uh, that we use in the financial world to plan for the future. Instead, I, I would just like to emphasize on two critical attributes in uh, in dealing with uh, the prevailing uh, economic circumstances uh, that nations businesses and individuals are facing together so so these attributes are really agility and resilience so you know and and, and since i work at uh, aspen medical where a lot of work that we do is around project management it, you know it it not only requires us to be highly responsive to the situation, but also be highly collaborative in our approach to achieving deadlines in a high tempo, intense work environment. So, and, and, and a practical demonstration of this core value is what I've witnessed firsthand uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we, we all have seen that the most resilient companies during 2008 economic crisis geared up uh, for for the recession earlier than their counterparts, even if they've they've lost their re re revenue during the downturn, uh, the resilient uh, companies they they had higher EBITDA margins because they were able to reduce their fixed cost earlier in the recession cycle. So so I think it, it is the resilience and the agility that is the key. There have been twelve economic recessions since World War II, right? And a recession can last up to a couple of years. And not all countries or all businesses are affected to the same extent as others in, in any economic crisis or a recession. So no matter where you are in the world, and I think um, you, you will find that agile and resilient nations, businesses and individuals, uh, they are in the best position to weather the impact of uh, an economic crisis and come out stronger on the other side. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, I want to say thank you for uh, to James and Mozan. Thank you both for joining us. 
um, fantastic insights around uh, what every CFO looks for, CEO looks for in a CFO. And I think both of your orgs are very lucky to have you both. So thank you. Um, really good insights, both on pizza and the economy, cash forecasting, and a lot of very good things. So again, thank you for joining us. Um, so that will wrap up tonight's episode of Finance Masterminds, our podcast. And um, so we uh, thank everyone for joining as well. And we'll be back recording episode two in the near future. So stay tuned. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. All right. Take care, guys. Appreciate it. Bye.